Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the wins and fails of innovators. Brought to you by CDTM in Munich. Hello, everybody. Today, we are more than excited to have Judith Dada as a guest at Mostly Awesome. Judith is a partner and managing director of La Familia, a women-led Berlin-based VC firm that invests in seed-stage B2B tech startups. Previously, Judith worked as solution manager at Facebook, where she was responsible for all Amazon European teams and led the Facebook VC initiative to help startups efficiently unlock their data. She studied at three different universities, namely LMU in Munich, the University of Oxford and Columbia University, and on top underwent the add-on study program here at CDTM. So we are thrilled to have Judith, at least virtually, back at CDTM today. Exactly. In our conversation, Judith shares many insights with us. In particular, we will learn from her about macro-perspective topics like the social dilemma of innovators and whether big tech companies should be regulated and what we can do to build the right innovation ecosystem in Germany. On a VC perspective, we learn about diversity in VC and why networks are not the solution, but in some cases, the root of the problem and also what the process of launching a second fund looks like. So let's jump right in. Hi, Judith. We love to welcome you to Mostly Awesome. Now, from a bird's eye view, looking at your career path, you have done and achieved a lot while still being under 30. You've studied at four different universities, went on to start your career as manager at Facebook, and now you are a VC partner at La Familia. So let us know what drives you. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think the, the question of what drives me really comes down to curiosity. Um, so I've always been a huge fan of fantasy novels and, you know, anything fantasy in general. I think the power of creation and creativity, you know, that is so strong that it can sometimes even bend logic. And, you know, the way we think about what is possible in the world is sometimes something that I find incredibly fascinating. And for me, technology has always been, you know, a little bit like magic in, in certain ways and forms because it can really expand and grow to something that we haven't really deemed possible before. And so... That is really what drives me. Okay. And I mean, this mindset brought you where you are today, being a VC partner. Now, what do you think is a fast track for students who aspire to become a VC partner like you? Yeah, you can have two different perspectives on life. You can either have the perspective of you really want to become X. So you really want to become an astronaut. You really want to become a VC partner. And I think that the thing to then just do is try and meet as many people in that space as possible. Try to work as hard as you can. And, you know, let nothing stand in the way of you getting there. I have taken a little bit of a different perspective on life. You know, I didn't wake up 10 years ago and said, oh, I really want to be a VC partner. In fact, you know, like 10 years ago, I wanted to become a doctor and then I wanted to become a journalist and then I wanted to become a person working in tech. And so that for me has always been um, something that is very fluid. And so I think the motto that I've gone with is, is a little bit of a bottom up motto, which is just expose yourself to high risk, but also high reward opportunities and really try to not narrow yourself down too much as to what life holds for you. Have an open mind um, and really go after the opportunities, not the good ones, but the absolutely fantastic ones, the opportunities that might seem like, you know, everything can break down tomorrow and everything can fail. But if the thing that you're trying to do turns out to be successful, that could have a tremendous impact on your life. And so that's been 
my philosophy. Um, and I think so far it's, it's served me rather well. So when you expose yourself to these high risk, high reward opportunities, how do you account for the risks? Yeah, I think there's different levels of risk. There can be a financial risk with regard to you at some point being out of a job, you know, having to provide for a family. There can be, you know, certain reputational risks. I think particularly in Germany and Europe still there is the notion of, you know, failure not being something that is so great and, and something to be so proud about. You know, really um, coming from a perspective of asking, well, what really is the maximum worst thing that could happen? And I think actually the Freeletics founders in one of the first kick-up sessions in the kick-off weekend in Fischbach Aue at CDTM, when I was just in the kind of last semesters of my bachelor's studies, they said something that had this like fundamental impact on me. They said, you know, we live in Germany, how deep can you fall, right? Like we've got, we, we have the pleasure and the the honor of living in one of the countries in the world that has the widest social security net and, you know, really has a society that embraces people across all walks of life where, you know, if you, if you fail with something, you really don't have to worry about, you know, landing on the street or not being able to provide for your family anymore. And so I think that should make all of us even more comfortable to take risk, especially when we're still young, we maybe, you know, don't have a huge mortgage to pay, we maybe don't have, you know, three kids that need food on the table every night. And so I think that's the the freedom of, of being young just generally should drive people to more risk affinity. I totally agree. Now, we spoke about your decisions. And since you decided back in the days as a graduate to not yet enter the VC world, in retrospective, what would you advise young graduates? Yeah, I think, again, for me, you know, it was less this linear path that I had always, you know, seen and this, this master plan, you know, that I had always known, but it was really more trying to do the best work I could do, trying to find the people in life that elevate you. And, you know, understanding the element of luck and its importance on your path. And I think anyone who is successful in whatever you would define success by, I think, you know, you should never underestimate the element of chance or the element of luck on your path. And also understanding that at, at the end of the day, doing the hard work, building the great network, those are all things that are obviously massively important. But having people um, who see something in you and who are able to lift you up, that can be family, it can be friends, it can be, you know, work partners, that is very, very important. And find the people who are willing to lift you up, who are willing to sponsor you on your you know, path. I think that is the most important thing when it comes to being successful in any job, really, that you set out to do. It's interesting to hear again about the power of a network. But now let's move from networks to social networks. The documentary, The Social Dilemma, where tech experts sound the alarm on dangerous human impact of social networking is rising in popularity. So I'm wondering, you as an ex-Facebook employee, do you think we should regulate Facebook or other tech companies? Yeah, I've heard about this documentary and lots of people have told me to watch it. It's on my watch list on Netflix. I haven't actually gotten around to seeing it, but I, I shall fill you in on whether my perspective changes once I've seen it. But, you know, listen, I think I've, I've got two perspectives really on, um, you know, Facebook and, and, you know, is Facebook an evil company? And, and I think the one perspective is um, the one of someone who's worked at Facebook and having met hundreds of coworkers and, and Facebook employees who want to do good, who genuinely want to do good, I can very much say for myself that, you know, Facebook is not an evil company. It's not a company driven by evil people, though I think, you know, many people would love for this narrative to be true because it's sensational and people love sensationalism. The other perspective, and I think that is the more valid question, is, 
you know, I think with the rise of the internet and certain technologies, we've seen an amount of companies just becoming insanely huge, right? And and I think there is a fair question to ask um, with regard to, you know, should companies be allowed to be that big? And I think there is a question with regard to competition and innovation. And I do think it's fair to think about regulating those companies if it is proven that their behavior and their power crowds the market out from new innovation from other entrants, because that is harmful. We all want to live in a world where, you know, new things, new innovations can be built. And we all know the innovators dilemma. And I'm not sure that the big companies will always go after, you know, the most promising opportunities because they obviously have a bias, you know, towards protecting their existing asset and revenue base. They're the kind of early signs of regulation that we're seeing in the US. I, I certainly think that is an important movement. The other question is, is more of a moral question, right? It's less coming from a, a question of competitiveness, but it's really asking this, is Facebook a bad company? And, and platforms like Facebook and Instagram, are they do- doing more bad than they are doing good for the world? And they're, I think I tend to fall into a camp of people that don't think you can blame technology for inherent kind of human dynamics, because I think that's a little bit too short-sighted. We definitely need to rethink the way that we consume information and social scientists and psychologists, they all need a louder voice and a, a more prominent seat at the table when it comes to you know forming the products that at the end of the day touch billions of lives. But at the same, don't necessarily think that you know just by forcing Facebook or other companies to change their product strategy that necessarily solves the fundamental problem of human education. You know, the fact that we, we are creating a world in which humans want sensation, they want negativity. And I think, I think that's a bigger kind of social struggle that we have to deal with. And that's all of our jobs, right? It's not Facebook's job. It's not Snapchat's job. It's not Google's jobs. It's like, that's a human job. That's a mother's job. That's a teacher's job. And I think that's the conversation we should be having. And it's just, very, very easy to kind of, you know, blame Facebook and, you know, blame them for everything that's going wrong in the world. Mm -hmm. So what would you change that the aware consumption would actually be the thing we're tackling versus blaming technology? Yeah, so I think it really comes down to education, right? I think at the end of the day, you want to foster a sensation or an, an education that really focuses on reflection and nuanced inquiry. And I think that can only be created through education and by making people see the value of, of reasoning, the value of deep understanding. Um, and, you know, that's something that you learn as a child. I think that's not necessarily something that you can teach someone, you know, once they've been exposed to a certain way of thinking for 50 years. And so I think really education is the, is the key piece to in the puzzle here. Obviously, platforms also have a role to play. And if they are taking certain steps with regard to screen time, with regard to making people aware of the time that they spend online. And I certainly think there is a huge amount of work that you can do on the algorithmic side in terms of how information gets pushed and what information gets distributed. But at the end of the day, if you want to go full circle, you really need to start with education. Mm -hmm. Now, you also said about the social dilemma that one problem, of course, is that companies are insanely huge. And that has me to another comment you once made in another podcast saying in Europe, we cannot build the next Amazon, rather the next BMW or Siemens. Why do you think that? So I think, first of all, I, I, I wish it was not like that. I wish, you know, we were building the next Instagram and we were building the next Amazon. But I think the, 
the reason um, for me saying that is, you know, we still have an issue around creating a digital single market in Europe. Um, you know, when it comes to taxation, when it comes to norms and consumer protection, when it comes to hiring, I think also the fact that not everyone in Europe speaks the same language, but you really have, you know, kind of multiple cultures, multiple languages that it doesn't necessarily make it easy for a consumer company to get massive, right? When you when you've set up a company in the US, it, it's just a lot easier because you've got a much more homogeneous market. The same goes for certain Asian countries. And so I think that is just a structural barrier where more needs to be done on the regulation and policy front to make us more competitive there. However, if you look at B2B, right, B2B is always a global business um, by definition or by default, right? So you sell to companies in, you know, Latin, the US, Europe. And so there's no reason for why a company, you know, shouldn't get massive that is born out of Europe, you know, the same way it gets massive when, when it's kind of created in Silicon Valley or New York. Um, and on top of that, I think, you know, if you look back at the company culture and the legacy that we have in Europe, we've got all these massive, you know, world market leaders, hidden champions that have insanely intricate knowledge on certain processes and certain technologies that they've really, you know, improved on over decades, sometimes hundreds of years. And so really tapping into that knowledge and, you know, making use of sensors of, you know, of, of digital technologies to be able to bring that to the next level, develop new applications new platforms i think that is the, the race that we can win and the game that we can play rather than always trying to play catch up with you know a market that is just differently shaped and sized than other markets in the world mm -hmm. but what do you think needs to change in germany to make us more competitive in that regard so that we have greater chances to build the next amazon instagram facebook you name it despite the structural barriers we face in europe i think it's all about philosophy and mindset. I was in an office hour session with a few very gifted and very smart entrepreneurs a couple of weeks ago. And someone asked the question, if I gave you all the money in the world, meaning if money didn't play a role, was not a restricting factor, what would you be solving? And, you know, everyone kind of looked at us and, and they, they didn't know what to say. It was so big of a, of a question that suddenly people didn't have a reply. And I think that's something that's still quite German. And let me say that I, I hate to whip oneself on the back and say, you know, the Germans were so risk averse and were so conservative, because I think we should also be celebrating the progress that we have made. And we've made a ton of progress. But if I compare the pitches of, you know, German entrepreneurs versus US entrepreneurs, there still is a massive gap, you know, in terms of the boldness, in terms of just daring to see things differently, you know, daring to be aggressive, daring to think very, very big, that's still seen as something, you know, audacious and, and, and negative in Germany. And so I always tell entrepreneurs, especially female entrepreneurs, you know, when you pitch like, be so bold that your own boldness makes you uncomfortable. You know, you should be going out of that pitch thinking, maybe I was overdoing it a bit. Like, no, you're not overdoing it. That's just the right amount of, you know, courage and confidence. Um, because as, as VCs and, you know, the whole kind of startup and, and innovation game, it's not investing into the status quo. It's not investing into the numbers that you have today that might be absolutely horrible. It's investing into the journey that still lies ahead of you. So you need to find a way to paint the picture of, us together going on that journey. And that is best done with a huge amount of vision and less conservatism than, than we see in today. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think we can reprogram our low risk appetite and boldness level, although it is so inherent in our culture to be more conservative? And if so, how? 
Yeah, I think 100%. We're socially conditioned beings. You know, none of us are none of us are like neutral computers where you know you've got input factors on one end and output factors on the other. Like we're all we're we're kind of a membrane. We're a sponge of everything that goes on around us, right? So it can be your kindergarten teacher, it can be your father, it can be you know the people that you you know hang out with uh, you know during lunchtime in the courtyard at school. Like all of the perspectives and thoughts that these people, you know, mirror back to you will have an impact on what you think in life on, you know, the kinds of parties you vote for, you know, the books that you read, like there's so many things that kind of impact people at the earliest stage of their life. And so I certainly think, you know, I mean, I have yet to find, you know, one of my friends and we all went to German kind of Grundschule and Gymnasium. I have to yet find someone who said they had someone teaching them economics, Wirtschaft und Recht, how it was called back in the day, that was pro-entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship even played playing a role in those courses. You know, it was all like very abstract and very much kind of driven by kind of macroeconomics, but it never actually spoke about the dynamics of founding a business, what entrepreneurship means, and especially Germany, you know, we're a nation of, of entrepreneurs. We're a nation of family businesses. Without entrepreneurship, Germany in itself wouldn't exist. So there's so much to celebrate here. And I think we should find ways of doing that more proactively in school. Totally agree. Now, as a VC partner, you are definitely exposed to a high-risk environment when evaluating a startup's potential to become the next industry or tech giant. And I mean, you sure look at the team, product, traction and market, right? But since you have this data-driven perspective from your former role at Facebook, to what extent do you make use of data to fuel your evaluation funnel at La Familia? Yeah, so it's the it's the holy grail, right? I mean, every VC these days is building some data-driven platform to be able to source deals and evaluate deals. And we are certainly also um, investing in that space, and particularly Viet Lee from our team, who's actually also Vietnam alumnus. He joined us about one and a half years ago. He's the one really leading, leading the charge here and, and making sure that we also build more data-driven capabilities. I think so far we've been very network-driven. Um, we have you know great angels, great other founders that refer fantastic deal flow to us. We also have the luxury of having very, very deep ties in the established industries or, you know, enterprises more broadly. So when it comes to references and when it comes to very quickly forming an opinion on the size or the, the promise of a market, you know, we have people typically just a phone call away. And so that has been very, very helpful from a data perspective in terms of coming to terms with whether or not something is a good investment. But I think now that we see the market investing so heavily into data-driven opportunities and also the market getting more competitive, which for founders is a great thing. So there's never been a better time despite COVID to found a company than it is now. But that means that we need to move even earlier. And there, I think data can play a big role. It is really interesting here to, again, see the power of a network. That also reminds me of an article written by you we stumbled across in our research stating that for entrepreneurs, the network cannot only be the solution, but also the root of the problem. Yeah, so I think networks are a double-edged sword. Um, on the one hand, CDTM is the best example. We know how powerful networks can be. And without CDTM, I certainly wouldn't be where I am today. And CDTM has been one of the you know, most impactful steps and impactful networks in my, in my life. I think at the same time, networks always operate on the paradigm of being in or being out. And so if you're out of the network, then all the power that tends to accumulate within the network is not accessible to you. And this would all be totally fine if networks were by default heterogeneous and if networks were only ever optimizing for 
quote unquote, the best value. What we see, however, and there's a lot of social science research on this as well, is networks tend to be the same. They tend to have this tendency to homophily, meaning, you know, if you've got a network of, you know, people who look a certain way or who went to a certain university or who have a certain social background, come from a certain space in society, they tend to cling to one another. And so what that creates is it doesn't create access on the base of merit. It creates access on the base of you look like me, you behave like me, you think like me. That is where the problem starts. Because I've heard I've heard people say things like, if you're a founder, a female founder, and you, you don't have warm introductions to to funds, then just go on your LinkedIn and you know look at your favorite partner at a VC firm and just look at your shared connections with that partner and ask them for an introduction. And it, it didn't even seem to cross those people's mind that maybe female founders, if they look at their favorite partner on LinkedIn, have zero common connections. And that's because networks are the same and they tend to you know crowd out people who don't belong to that sameness that is something that we have to talk about we have to talk about how networks become better if they become more exclusive and how that can be a, a real societal issue for those who you know for for reasons that they can do nothing about because maybe they were born into a, into a certain country or they have certain they have certain other you know disabilities or things you know that you know, make it harder for them to get ahead in life, that those factors play a role in how people are able to access networks of power. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of inclusion and diversity, what's remarkable at La Familia is that you are a women-led VC. And in August, you have announced your second fund, totaling 50 million. So congrats to that. Now, along the way of raising the second fund, have you encountered biases solely because you are a female VC partner in yeah, a still predominantly white male VC sphere? Yeah, overall, fundraising is tough, right? I, I have yet to come across a VC who says, you know, I love fundraising. So we've been super lucky, um, you know, with the fundraise. It went very successfully. It also went quite quick, despite the pandemic, we've got fantastic partners. So the outcome is great. You know, certainly there were moments where we could see biases creeping through. Like one of the questions that particularly Jeanette got a lot was, uh, you know, where, where are your kids? Kind of you're, you're coming to a meeting and, you know, you're sitting down and you're having a glass of water and then conversation starts and they're like, so where are your kids? And We were just always wondering, like, would men be asked that question? And I almost jokingly said to Jeanette, you know, you should just say they're dead at the bottom of a lake. I mean, you know, where would the kids be? I mean, they're at home, right? They're with their father. They're with a nanny. I don't know. Um, and, and that was just a sign of there was there was kind of a read on us as women. And that read was very much kind of driven by being a mother rather than being a VC partner that's here to have a conversation about fundraising. And I don't even think it was coming from a bad place. And a lot of those you know, partners who asked those questions ended up investing with us. But I think it still shows that there isn't equity in how men and women are perceived in the world. And, and there are very there are specific lenses through which women are seen. I think sometimes that can that can really hamper their ability to get ahead in life. And I think this is changing. Um, I think especially the young generation is, is really moving the needle here. But overall, I think especially in Germany, especially you know in, in, in our quite still conservative uh, culture, a lot of challenges persist. Yeah, I also believe that men don't have it on top of their radar that such a question is biased. So in your eyes, what is the best way to handle such situations? Yeah, only way to react, at least from my uh, view, is with warmth and elegance, but directness, right? So answering something like, my kids are well, thank you very much. They're at home with my partner or with my husband or whatever it might be. 
stay nice. We're nice people. And, you know, people make mistakes. And I think there's, there's one way of reacting, which is, you know, a very aggressive, you know, kind of how dare you way. And I, I don't think that necessarily helps fostering the cause that we that we all want to achieve. Be nice, be warm, be elegant. That that will likely bring you much closer to achieving your goal than the other way around. And now, since we picked up on your second fund, you mentioned that raising a VC fund is like a very tedious process. No one is keen on doing. Can you share some insights into how we can imagine this process to look like? Yes, I think it's less that the, that the process is so tedious, but it's more the paralyzation of efforts, right? Because you still have typically your your investments, and often you're still conducting investments while you're already beginning to raise the next fund, and you obviously have the established portfolio that also needs to to be taken care of, and so it's just longer hours and just more work that needs to get done. So that tends to have a little bit of a strain on calendars. But you know, overall, I mean, you know, typically you raise a fund for the you know cycle of 10 to 12 years and out of those 10 to 12 years you um you know start building the portfolio for typically the first kind of two and a half to four years depending on the fund strategy and so for the first two and a half to four years you're really kind of happily making first investments and then typically kind of a year before you get to the end of those two to four years you start raising the next fund because you want to make sure that once you've started building the portfolio of the first fund you have a smooth transition into the second fund to make sure that you're not missing out on any opportunity in the market. And so it was the same for us. We stopped investing out of the first fund in autumn last year and then also started investing out of the second fund then. And so it, it's really about timing and it's really about parallelization. That is, I think, something that that we're that we're good at. We have a fantastic team and they were, you know, they're able to step up and deny the need to be, you know, out and about fundraising more. So that's worked really well, but it certainly means kind of more work uh, on typically, you know, not more shoulders. So you just need to be a little bit smarter about the way that you work. Mm-hmm. And considering the usual fund cycle of 10 to 20 years, you, of course, can't show plenty realized exits yet from the first fund, right? So what metrics have you then pitched to your LPs to acquire the capital for fund two? Yeah, so I think it really depends. But you're absolutely right in, in saying that for the second fund raise, you don't have uh, you know a tremendous amount of uh, realized exits yet because it still is so early in the fund life cycle but you certainly do have metrics point towards the development portfolio companies and so it's really telling the story of you know how these metrics came about follow on funding rounds revenues other types of um, progress you know other than exits that still paint the picture of where the portfolio is headed and then also just generally explaining the strategy of the fund explaining the type of company um, that we want to invest in and then the, the thing that we CEs want to talk most about is, you know, why would you be able to pick the best opportunities? And if you identify the best opportunities, how are you able to actually get a seat at the table with those companies? So how are you able to convince the entrepreneur to take your money? Because good opportunities tend to have quite a lot of demand in the market. So it becomes all about the value proposition of the fund and, and what you can bring on offer to entrepreneurs. And so I think it, it tends, that tends to be a more strategic discussion around kind of the values um, and the and the specific set of port angles of, of a given fund. And so in total, And in some, that then makes up the bulk of the kind of decision-making impact uh, for LPs. Mm -hmm. So probably also during the pitching of the value proposition was the lockdown of COVID-19. Did it actually affect the process of establishing the fund for you at La Familia? No, not really. I think we were lucky in, um, you know, having raised the vast amount of capital before COVID-19. You know, we've also been able to successfully close with a range of LPs during lockdown. You know, we've been very lucky in having partners that trust us, partners that trust the, the returns and trust the outcomes of venture, despite kind of 
hectic situations in, in global markets. And so that hasn't really affected us. It interestingly enough also hasn't really affected our portfolio. Uh, actually, a lot of companies that we thought might struggle because they're, you know, in markets that might be sensitive to the pandemic have been able to accelerate their growth. And that's true down to, you know, various number of, of reasons. It can be because now cost cutting and, you know, need for digital streamlined solutions is even higher. And so they're able to just meet more concrete demand. And um, other companies were actually so early that they were still building product. And so for them, it, you know, really just didn't make any difference, difference whatsoever. And other companies were very clearly, you know, enabling companies um, and people as they were going into lockdown by offering solutions that enable digital collaboration and transparency. And so I think by and large, um, we've seen a, a more robust portfolio after the pandemic than before the pandemic, even though overall, we certainly went into a little bit of a crisis mode, a little bit of an introspection and, you know, going through the portfolio and, and making sure we follow up with every entrepreneur, you know, understand what the budget is, what the runway is, and making sure they're, they're well equipped to make changes and make cuts if that's necessary. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Speaking of following up with the entrepreneurs, to what extent do you provide operational support? Yeah, no, operational support, or I wouldn't call it operational support, but like strategic support is something that is very, very important. And it can be things like sales, making introductions. It can be helping with hiring by recommending a fantastic talent. It can be, in, in general terms, navigating the market, making sure you you take the right path when it comes to going left or going right. And so it's really a multitude of factors. I think the one thing that tends to be most important for us is really market access, especially when it's enterprise sales companies, because, uh, you know, a sales cycle of 12 to 24 months can kill your business if you're in the early stage and you only have runway for 18 months. So really making sure we're able to accelerate the go-to-market go for, for founders or able to open doors where doors would otherwise stay closed. That's the, the core focus and a lot of the the kind of time spent that we that we work with and for portfolio companies. Besides the go-to-market being a success, what if a startup does not perform? So when do you discontinue committing resources? Yeah, so I think startups failing is a reality of every early stage VC. And in fact, most VCs, no matter what the stage is, the one thing is that it is incredibly hard to spot the outliers early on because companies falter and ebb, you know, kind of they sometimes are more successful than they're less successful. And so it's not always easy to, at the beginning of a fund life, so definitively spot the companies that will end up being outliers. Sometimes it is the case. You sometimes have the companies, they start, they skyrocket and nothing in between, but it's not always the case. The one thing is having a very uh, strong discursive process and data-driven process within the firm to try and understand, you know, what the best performing portfolio companies are. And then I think the other thing is, you know, I mean, failure is a reality of, of the life of an entrepreneur. And so I you know, we haven't necessarily seen entrepreneurs, you know, whose business hasn't worked out being bitter or that necessarily being a super difficult situation. It's, we're, we're there for them. And, and we always, we're always mindful to also make sure we follow up with the entrepreneurs that don't do so well. I think, you know, every entrepreneur needs to understand that at the end of the day, our biggest or most important duty is the duty that we have towards LPs and creating a successful fund outcome. And so just for signaling reason, it wouldn't make sense to keep throwing money at a company that we know and, you know, sometimes the entrepreneurs know, you know, is, is doomed to fail. But I think there are other ways in which you can be supportive. It can be, you know, navigating a potential trade sale. You know, it can be it can be finding ways of getting their employees who are fantastic, find um, opportunities within different companies if they need to let a lot of people go. So there's a lot of things that I think can be done that are supporting entrepreneurs, even though you're not committing capital anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
So enough for the professional. Let's move to some more personal questions. You are also a passionate writer and we read that we can expect a novel from you. What will it be about? Yeah, I think I wouldn't call myself a passionate writer. I'd rather call myself a distracted writer <laughs> because unfortunately I don't have all the time that I would need to, to really progress with this project. Um, I can, I can say that it's a, you know, it's a fantasy novel about a world in which we all use a certain type of device to communicate and what that does with us and the way we interact. So that's, that's how much it will say. Um, it is progressing. You will be first ones to know, you know, once this book launches and anyone is willing to read it. But so far, unfortunately, distracted writing is, <laughs> is I think, the term that best describes my, uh, my current writing career. Okay, but a fantasy novel sounds promising. So curious how that goes. Now, you mentioned throughout our conversation that you had great mentors and sponsors along your way. So what is actually the best piece of advice you have ever received? That's a tough one. Um, one piece of advice that I thought was very, very helpful was back in my student days when I was in the, in the kind of selection process for Uh, a scholarship that I received. Uh, one of the um, jury members and and also kind of a mentor in some capacity now said to me, you know, you've like you've achieved some some great things despite being quite young. But you know, the most important thing is to always remember that the the higher you climb, the thinner the air. And you know, I think that is just something that continuously you know drives me. And, and you know, never feeling like you can lean back. And and that not coming from a perspective of stress, but just coming from the perspective of, you know, continuously stepping up your game and continuously learning and being curious and, you know, being willing to do the work, put your head down and just focus, 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 work, 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 um, and hopefully, you know, create the type of impact that you want to create. And now moving from the best piece of advice you have received to what advice you would actually give us on your favorite tools to use. Starting with the first question, what book would you highly recommend everyone to read? So there's a fantastic novel by Madeline Miller called Circe. It's about um, a semi-goddess, um, the daughter of the Uh, god of the sun um uh it's you know a mix of kind of greek mythology and um very very um fascinating writing um and it talks about an incredibly strong woman um, who with magic and and wit um kind of forms her way through the world um so yeah one of my all-time favorites and something i can highly recommend mm -hmm. and what is your favorite app to use as of now Yeah, so I mean, for, for me, it's really Spotify. <laughs> I think, you know, being able to listen to music wherever you are, you know, still one of the best innovations that I've seen in, in my day and age. Yeah, speaking of Spotify, I mean, it is also a great tool to listen to podcasts. So I'm curious, what's your favorite podcast or podcast episode? Yeah, similarly, I mean, there's a bunch of podcasts that I listen to and love, but the The one that I most recommend is called On Being by Krista Tippett. Um, very similar to actually Brain Pickings by Maria Popova. It's about spirituality. It's about poetry. It's about, you know, seeing the, the sense behind things, seeing the humans, seeing the energy, seeing the, um, yeah, the kind of the small things that make the world go round that are all kind of not technology related, but deeply human focused and human centered. Yeah, and just a great way of zooming out of our day to day life and taking new perspective. 
And now, last one, what newsletter do you love to read? Yeah, so I love Brain Pickings by Maria Popova. It's got nothing to do with BC, nothing to do with tech. It's about philosophy. It's about art. It's about, um, uh, you know, writing, writers. And it's just really a great stimulation for the mind that takes you outside the kind of day-to-day -day work of making investments and thinking about technology. Great, Dan, it's a wrap. Thanks so much, Judith, for deep diving into the VC cosmos with us. And yeah, I mean, dear upcoming founders, you have heard Judith focus on B2B because it holds great potential of bringing up the next industry or tech giant, despite the structural barriers we face here in Germany. Judith, it was a pleasure to have you on Mostly Awesome and to get your insights. So merci for joining us today and stay healthy. Thanks so much for your time. Stay safe and hopefully see you in person and in real life soon. And just a small pointer from our side, if you like to have a look at Judith's toolbox in written form, then make sure to follow our LinkedIn page. Just type in CDTM in the search bar or jump onto our website, cdtm.de slash podcast, where we curate each guest toolbox for you. And also feel free to subscribe to our podcast to not miss out on upcoming episodes of Mostly Awesome, launching bi-weekly on Wednesdays. We are Easy and Melly. Thanks for listening in. 